A few months ago, I was traveling on one of the many large ferries that transports humans around the region where I live. As sometimes happens, partway through the trip, the captain's voice came over the speakers to announce that they'd spotted a pod of whales off the bow of the ship. And it was as if he'd sighted a celebrity floating somewhere between the boat and the islands through which we passed. Parents plucked their kids up and took off without coats to the windy outer deck just to catch a glimpse. Cameras were held aloft in every hand, and suddenly strangers became a kind of community through our shared excitement as we waited for a flashing glimpse of fin or tail or back, or a splash that might reference the magical animal lying beneath the thick gray skin of water. We were voyeurs, anticipant and eager, and still so separate from these beings we desperately wanted to witness. So as a kid, um, around the age of five, I started having recurring dreams about pink beluga whales. And well, it was just one particular beluga whale who lived in a swimming pool. And the pinkness of his skin stood out against the really bright blue of the water and there were palm trees around. And we communicated without talking. And the beluga whale was my friend. Um, yeah. And I remember it telling me that it was very lonely and I would sit there beside it in my pajamas. <laughs> You're listening to the Big Bright Dark Podcast. My name is Olive Dempsey. In this episode, we have a conversation with Leah Abramson. Her latest album, Songs for a Lost Pod, came into being through her deepening relationship with Northern resident Orca Wales. When performed live, she's joined by spoken word artist Barbara Adler, whose work you'll also hear. And in this episode, we'll hear about how Leah was changed through her journey to bring this album into being about what it takes to wait patiently for the whales and the music to make themselves known. We'll hear about her healing encounter with a German engineer and about how a family history of trauma can also be a bridge to the experiences of our other than human friends. Then I started having dreams again about killer whales. I have this record it's called Sound, uh, Songs and Sounds of Orcanus Orca, um, recorded by Paul Spong, who worked at the Vancouver Aquarium um, initially and then started Greenpeace, convinced that whales were sentient beings. I ha found this record in a thrift store, and at the time I was learning to play theremin, and I don't know if you know what a theremin sounds like, but it can sound very whale-like. So it can really sound like an orca. And so for a little while, I was playing along to this record, <laughs> making orca sounds. And um, well, so I started having orca dreams, like a lot of orca dreams and all different kinds. Um, but I never actually seen orcas in the wild. And can you tell me like what's happening in the orca dreams? Well, they, there's all different kinds. Like sometimes... Like there was this one where I was in an abandoned apartment building, like it was just a concrete shell of an apartment building and the water kind of started filling up and there were orcas around me and I might've had like a life raft or something. And I was in, then I was in the water with the orcas and they were kind of like after me, but also I was still talking to them. So I had this 
same ability to communicate with them, but I couldn't tell if they were friendly or not. Mm. And then I would just dream about either being in the water with them or seeing them from shore. Then I started researching or- orcas, basically. I was like, why am I dreaming about orcas? Like, what's going on here? Like, because it was just another recurring thing, and I had no idea. Like, I wasn't particularly obsessed with whales when I was a kid or anything. Besides that beluga dream, like, I didn't really have much connection to whales at all. As I researched them, I just became totally obsessed and fascinated with them. An orca's survival depends upon the family pod. The orca who live in our region are especially tight-knit. Both male and female offspring stay with their mother's pod for their entire lives. And when a baby orca dies, the mother is sometimes seen dragging the infant's body with her for days, refusing to let it go. It seems orca relate to each other in a very relatable way. And there's a nice metaphor there. But there's also the real world. In the real world, orca and human brains both have a highly developed limbic system. That's the part of the brain in charge of emotional processing and the formation of memories. But the thing is, for all the weight and richness we feel in our memories, humans are pretty basic in terms of our equipment. Our limbic system is small compared to the huge region that orca have full of the kinds of cells associated with social organization and empathy. We don't know exactly what all those extra cells do, but scientists speculate that they could be responsible for the incredible group cohesion, almost as if the individual self extended to include selves that were not the self. From 1965 to 1973, groups of orca in the Pacific Northwest were regularly rounded up and sold to marine parks. Many died during the process of capture, or within a few years of living in captivity. Further north, the Exxon Valdez oil spill of 1989 vanished whole generations of orca. Those who disappeared were presumed dead, though it's plausible that some survived and simply never returned to their home waters. The lost, the gone. I used to have like a family tree that I would refer to all the time that I'd like written out and copied out of a book and was like kind of tracking like who, you know, like nobody knows the fathers of the whales usually, but um, they all, we all know who their mothers are. They're a matriarchal society, so, uh, or matrilineal, I guess. So I'd been researching this one family with this capture history. So they'd had at least three whales taken from them. Uh, like young whales and taken to marine parks and like at the same time that I was researching this stuff I was also researching trauma in particular like intergenerational trauma and it was like these two kind of side-by-side research topics and I was sort of I guess using the whales as sort of a mirror for my own experience um my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and so I lost like a whole branch of my family tree, pretty much. Like my mother has no relatives, really. And so I was sort of dealing with the echoes of that or kind of really thinking a lot about that in terms of effects on me and my family during that time and 
when I was reading about the capture history of this one family, I really decided to focus on those particular whales and kind of use that to reflect my own experience. There's more than one generation of Eastern European kids who grew up in Canada as the children of refugees. Some of these children's parents cut ties with their friends and families, sneaking across borders to escape Soviet communism. Some of the parents' parents were Holocaust survivors and the only remaining members of their own families. They left, expecting never to return. A few settled in Vancouver, where their children grew up exploring the beaches of the Pacific Northwest and watching captive orca perform at the Vancouver Aquarium. Grief and trauma are difficult to trace. It's a bit like trying to find the starting point of an echo. When you add in time and imagine grief as it's passed down through families, you can feel how hard it is to pinpoint reaction to a great loss that wasn't directly yours to experience. It's like trying to find the source of an echo for a sound you didn't make yourself. Sophie and Leah met on a beach in rural BC, in the territory of the Namgis Nation, in a town that Finnish settlers named Sointula. The beach is covered in even-sized round pebbles, about the size of an egg, and it drops off steeply from the shore's edge. Each year, as they travel through the area, orcas swim in to rub their bodies on those stones, though no one knows why. They come in so close that people travel from around the world for the experience. One person, Troy, has a semi-permanent campout all summer, where he carefully camouflages himself so the whales aren't afraid or startled by the bright colors of a raincoat or the rapid movement of human activity. When I first got to the beach, there was a girl there uh, also waiting to see the whales, and her name was Sophie, and she was from Germany. And... Um, she was an engineer and like just totally unlike me like she like I just showed up like with you know in like cutoffs and like didn't have enough food or water and was just like like sitting there with like you know like recording things and like writing things and just kind of unprepared for the elements and kind of goofing off and she like she was prepared like she had all like the right clothes she had her water bottle and her lunch and her like book that she was reading to pass the time and in her like beautiful camera like to document everything she took great pictures and I just didn't feel like I had anything in common with her but like I was stuck on a beach with her for like two weeks and I was like okay whatever I'm gonna make the best of this <laughs> so this was like maybe 10 days in and I'm just like okay here is me and Sophie again sitting on this beach you know kind of just like chatting and passing away the time and and so this one day we were, yeah, we were sitting 
on a log kind of watching the sunset. It was a very, very windy day and like huge waves. And we were pretty sure no whales were coming that day. Um, but we just kind of sat there for a while, just kind of waiting as we did every day. And she just like asked me about my project. Um, and so I started just like telling her about what I was doing in this one particular family that I was researching. And, and I realized that she came from Germany and I was like, okay, here it goes. And I like, was like, yeah. And the, you know, the ties with my family and this is kind of like the connection that I'm exploring in this sort of way. And, and, um, and she got really quiet and I realized she was crying and she started telling me about her own family mm. and like what they did in the war. I, I don't exactly remember what she said. Like nobody was, you know, everyone, like they think they were in like the general army or something like that. Like nobody was an SS person or whatever, but she, she apologized to me. She was just like, I'm so sorry. Like I cannot, like she was trying to express how sorry she was. She just felt this such, deep guilt and shame about it and she wanted to know like what impacts it had had on my family and on me and really like asked me a lot of questions about that and then told me a bit about you know her her grandma and like some trauma that she'd suffered at the hands of the Russians and like some other stuff and and we just like kind of just talked about our, our families and and how we thought they'd been affected by the war and their experiences and, and how we'd been affected by growing up around that and growing up around them. Both my grandparents were Auschwitz survivors and it was like very, has shaped my family a lot. But, uh, but yeah, we basically just like talked and cried for like <laughs> an hour. Um, and it was really unexpected. just kind of like having this experience on a beach waiting for whales, you know, like it just felt like, like that was what was supposed to happen, you know? When a member of a family is in distress, say caught in a net or sick, you'll see the others in the pod start to dive. And what they're doing is taking turns, swimming beneath the struggling whale. They come under lift it to the surface, and help it breathe. To do that, each whale has to time their breaths with the length of their own dives and with each other. So in a way, the whole family moves as if it were sharing the same breath. You might know a bit of that feeling yourself if you've ever tried to sing harmony with a large group of people. If you're doing a good job of it, it's hard to tell where you start and the group ends. Everyone is so utterly reliant on each other's air. And the only way to pull this off is to be sensitive and to hear yourself in relation to what's needed by the group, to share the phrase you've come from, its memory, and where you're hoping to move it. So I was looking at I was looking at Orca society and their social structure is so tight, like their families are so tight. An Orca, you never see a lone Orca, never. Um, and if you do, there's something wrong. So I was like looking at 
the tightness of those family groups and looking at my own family and how kind of fractured mm -hmm. we got, you know, obviously because of trauma and the war and all those, all these things. Um, and also my own life and my own friend groups and, and like how people get so isolated and, and thinking about how that just doesn't happen in orchid society. Mm -hmm. They just can't like everyone depends on each other for survival. And then I was thinking about the project <laughs> and I was basically like extending like Orca society and like thinking about all aspects of my life and thinking about the project and realizing that I was trying to create this thing by myself and I obviously needed help from other people and but I had this kind of like thing where I was like I can't ask people to make beats for me that's like cheating or something well like no <laughs> right. I'm still gonna write the songs I just like I don't know how to make beats and I don't have time to learn. Yeah. Um, maybe someday I'll learn. I also, you know, where my heart is, is in um, melody and lyrics and the music and not, like, not the technical things. Like, I did record all, like, most of the vocals on my own, but when it comes to, like, editing and and all that kind of stuff, like, I do rely on other people. And also, like, like this idea that you should be, like, this person who can do all, like, everything by themselves, that you should be totally self-sufficient, that you shouldn't need other people. Like, these things are just, like, I think very Western and kind modern. Of yeah, and... exactly. Yes, exactly. So many things that I don't like about society is kind of encapsulated in this idea that you should do everything yourself. Yeah. So I made folders of sounds. You can actually download orca calls based on the type of call from a place called the archive which is online that's cute yes of course it's called the archive <laughs> <laughs> um uh which was somebody's phd project to put all these things online mm -hmm. steven ness thank you so orca lab has recorded these whales for like almost 40 years so then i made these folders um and also included some field recordings that I made on the beach in Swantula, some like ocean sounds, some like random things. Like I was also in Alaska for a month on a residency, so I recorded eagles there. Mm -hmm. And then I sent these folders to uh, friends of mine. <laughs> to basically, I was like, make me a track or a beat. <laughs> Hello. Airplanes have become a useful tool for capturing whales. From high above, the long shadows of the pod are easy to follow. Though their outlines sometimes melt away, deeper, they must always reappear, marked by a dorsal fin or the spray of a breath. In contrast, humans who free-dive with orca describe how their dark bodies seem to come from nowhere. In the ocean, orca choose when to make themselves known and disappear as absolutely as they arrive. When a generation of whales was captured in Pendra Harbor and trucked away to become permanent exhibits in marine parks across the world, the family members who were left chose not to show themselves in the area for nearly 40 years. It seemed as though they had changed the entire pattern of their lives, 
simply to erase the sight of their loss. perform parts of the album, um, the song that, and actually had the same effect on me when I listened to it recently, um, that felt most emotional to me was the one about the whales not being able to hear each other. How much of that is a thread for you in the album, the piece around the impact that human activity has had and it's having? Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. Um, I don't think there would be an album if that wasn't the case. Like if there you know, like also seeing them up close, you see how amazing they are. And you're just like, how could people keep doing the shit that they're doing? You know, it, and it hit me at various points during the project where, you know, I went through the whole range of emotions of like, I was really angry for a while. I was like devastated for a good long while. I still kind of go to back to that one. Like incredulous, like how could there not be regulations? Like how could there still be fish farming? How could people not be taking care of this? How could we still be like just taking things out of the ocean, dumping things into the ocean? Like how, like how is this happening? And why can't I do anything about it? You know, like just this kind of like alarming Mm -hmm. frustrate, like frustration really. And just like finding out about all this stuff that was happening and just being like, how is this happening? Like, how is this even possible? having this sort of awe and connection with whales really brought that home to me in a way where I was just like, the emotional impact of it was so much greater because I understood who they were. I hadn't always known about whaling, but I hadn't realized how much humans had depended on whale oil at the beginning of industrialization. Like how, how sus- like Western society ran on whale oil. It was like fossil fuels now. And the kind of like bloodshed and massacre that happened around the turn of the century or before was just incredible. There are reports of people just sighting whales constantly, like, like whales were everywhere before whaling. And now like, we're just like, you know, crossing our fingers to see a whale and we feel so lucky when we see one. The way the right whale got its name was because it was the right whale to kill. It was the right whale because they were slow, they didn't fight, and they had tons of blubber on them. And they were just easy targets. So if you got a right whale, you got the right whale. Like it was the easy one to kill. That kind of blew me away. I think 
going through the process of writing this album required me to deal with a lot of stuff in myself in order to write the songs because mm-hmm. I would get a question I would get like a topic and I would have to wrestle with it and I'd have to wrestle with those things in myself mm-hmm. if I was thinking about the role of family in my life or my connection with other people and how I was with other people mm-hmm. and then I would be writing a song from the perspective of a pod because most of these songs are written from the perspective of we of a pod because their family units are so tight like the individual doesn't really exist in the same way that it does like for me and so I was really trying to get into a headspace where I was thinking from a multiple perspective Mm -hmm. but that wasn't something that I knew how to do and that wasn't something that came naturally and that had its own grief associated with that but the process of putting myself in that frame of mind was kind of transformative Mm -hmm. so I was thinking a lot about community a lot about how I interact with other people and how I isolate myself how my connections with friends like what how I feel out in the world and people around me and and the barriers to all those things I'd find myself kind of trying to free free up space in that way in my life Mm -hmm. as and thinking in that way in the process of writing a song would sort of force me to look at my own life in that way and to like force me to kind of like confront those things and and try to change the things that I didn't like. Last summer, uh, I didn't see them at all. I was finishing my thesis up in Swintula again. I didn't see them at all. But actually, I was up in Swantila most recently, and I didn't really expect to see them. Um, I sort of had steeled myself for like not seeing them. I was like, well, I probably won't see them. I'm only here for a weekend. I was only there for two days. Carrie and Tyler from the Art Shed took us to um, this beach that they call the Secret Beach, which is like on the other side of the island, I think close to Mitchell Bay somewhere. I don't. I wouldn't know how to find it. We like went through a long, snaky series of roads, <laughs> and anyway, it's secret, so I can't tell anyone where it is. <laughs> and we got there, and there was there were a few humpbacks, and I was like, "Cool, I could see humpbacks. It's awesome." There were like four humpbacks or something like blowing to each other in like stereo. They were just like blow, 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 and they sound like you could hear them from up the path. They were their breathing is so loud, and it just like echoes off the beach and off the water, and it just like. Poof, and we were hanging out there and hanging out there and just listening to the humpbacks. And then I was like, oh, is that a porpoise? Oh, yeah, that's a porpoise. Cool. And then someone was like, oh, I think that might be an orca fin. And then it started with one family of orcas coming in towards us. And then there ended up being like 15 orcas or something that came in, hanging out right in front of this beach. And then we were watching them just being like, holy crap, this is incredible. And then... Two of them just like breach in succession, like right in front of us, like right in front. And that's where they like they kind of flip their bellies up and splash down. Yeah, like, they like jump out of the water yeah. and like splash. And it's so like that, what you see in like postcards for like yes, tours in BC. Exactly. And I'd never seen that before. And it was incredible. And it like came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. So like all of us were just like, What? Holy shit, like what just happened? Like it was incredible. Um and then we hung out there for like an hour and a half and the whales were just like swimming by. It looked like they were maybe foraging, like hunting or something. And then like 
kind of when we needed to leave, they like kind of took off. <laughs> it was amazing. Like it was incredible because I was not expecting to see them at all. Um, and I sort of felt like, like this weird kind of closure on the project. Mm -hmm. Like I felt this kind of like, it was like, high five, see you later. <laughs> wow. Um, so that was really cool. Um, it felt like really, like I cried again. I cried at the beach tripping. I cried again. Like it was just, wow. it was like involuntary. Like I can't control it. It's just like so moving to see them. And they're just like, they're such a presence, yeah. you know? Um, so yeah, that was pretty special and I felt really lucky to be able to see that. Um, I always feel lucky when I see them, like they're letting me see them, like they're letting me in on something. First it was a game, the young ones. Hair like sea. Thank you, friends, for being with us on another episode of Big Bright Dark, where we explore what it means to be making our way and making meaning on a changing planet. An extra big thank you to Leah Abramson and Barbara Adler for their words, music, and all-around generosity of time and spirit. You can find links to their websites and recordings at bigbrightdark.org. You can also find past episodes of this podcast at that site or on Stitcher and iTunes. This episode was brought to you by Jana Grazley, Christina Kuhn, and me, Olive Dempsey. Our original theme music is by Mark Beattie, and all other music in this episode is from Leah's album, Songs for a Lost Pod, which I just can't recommend highly enough. We acknowledge that Big Bright Dark is produced on the traditional unceded territory of the Squamish, tsleil and Musqueam people. <laughs>